One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Margaret Hodge. I had wanted to talk to Margaret about her brilliant book, Call to Account, about her time as chair of the Public Accounts Committee and how big companies uh, managed to get out of paying tax in the UK. It's a fantastic book if you haven't read it. I've put the link to it in the blurb. As you would imagine, we ended up talking about a different publication, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report into the Labour Party. That report, should you wish to read it, if you haven't read it already, I've put the link to the PDF in the blurb as well, dominates really this conversation. And not just the report, but Margaret's personal experience of the Corbyn years as a female Jewish MP. And particularly, two flashpoints where she talks to Corbyn directly about it and the detail about those encounters, about those meetings, about his behaviour and his reaction are so illuminating and are incredible to listen to. So really, that is at the heart of this interview. We do also talk about her fighting the BNP in the run-up to the 2010 election and defeating them in that election and uh, the things she had to do in order to defeat them. Uh, About the future of the Labour Party, how she feels now that it's under new management. But this is predominantly about the EHRC report, her reaction to it, and her personal experience of the last few years. This is deeply illuminating and at times absolutely heartbreaking but what's remarkable about Margaret is even when she's talking about these really stressful really horrific experiences not just of a wider community but of her personally she still manages to have so much energy and optimism and that energy and optimism that saw her beat the BNP and that kept her through some really dark times in the Labour Party in the last few years um are remarkable attributes that she has, uh, a, a real energy and a real positivity, despite all this. So uh, that really comes through. I began by asking Margaret, now that she'd read the EHRC report, whether she was satisfied with the conclusions and findings. 
satisfied a bit of a difficult word. So I was expecting a report that was very bureaucratic, that would go into processes and systems and be a sort of critique of, of uh, the pro that within the Labour Party. I wasn't expecting anything to be so direct, so bold, and so condemning, really, of uh, everything in the Labour Party and the leadership. It's littered with uh, uh, phrases and, and terms which demonstrate that things could have been different if the leadership had chosen to tackle anti-Semitism in a different way. So it was much more hard-hitting than I had anticipated, really. It's obviously been such a stressful experience for you and others. Um not just those who care about the future direction of the Labour Party and didn't want the Labour Party led in the manner in which it was led, but for you, the amount of personal abuse you've had to suffer, uh, the way that you were sometimes sort of dragged into the centre of things. Um, does the report itself represent... Obviously, there's still a long way to go with some of the other issues, but is it a form of closure, that report? I hope to, I describe it as being the beginning of the end. Um, I've sort of, I've been in the Labour Party now, this is outrageous because it shows my age, for getting on for nearly 60 years. Wow. And during those years, there have been lots of ups and downs and lots of internal struggles as well as, you know, memorable fights outside. But I've never known one that has been so um, horrible and so lonely uh, and so destructive. And I think that's because other battles I've been engaged with are very often not, you know, not as personal as this one has been. So the, the abuse has been really, it's been, not been about politics, it's about identity. Uh, it's who I am. And uh, it's, it, it's also been very much attacks from inside the party. So I never expected, never expected to have this sort of racist, anti-Jew hate from uh, comrades in the Labour Party. Uh, I joined the Labour Party because it was the anti-racist party. So the very heart and soul and the reason for my joining and feeling that it was my natural home were challenged by the sort of abuse that um, I, I was getting. And I don't think, I mean, I had pretty horrible abuse, Matt, with, of all sorts. I mean, I had it because I'm a woman. I had it because I'm Jewish. I had it really also on the grounds of being, of being older. So I hit, I was hit on every, uh, every attribute. Um, and um, it was pretty horrible. And the other thing to say, particularly this is true about me. I mean, I'll tell you a story here, but I'd never thought my Jewish identity would ever define my politics or consume my energy as, a, uh, as, a, as a, an activist and as a representative. It, you know, I've been brought up in a very sort of atheist uh, environment. I, uh, so I never participated in the sort of Jewish uh, traditions and festivals, never was part of a, that sort of a Jewish community. And um, also my parents were really, I came here as an immigrant, my parents were assimilators. So they very much wanted us to be settled as and accepted as British citizens from our immigrant um, background. And indeed, I always tell this rather funny story because I came in on a by-election in 1994 and um, because it was a by-election we had a, a Labour Party press office profit press officer uh, a, uh, given to us and she got a call from the Jewish Chronicle who wanted to interview me and it was Joe Gibbon at that time uh, and she um, uh, she said 
you know, they want to have an interview. I said, I've got absolutely nothing to say to the Jewish Chronicle. And she said, go on, Margaret, you've got to do it. So they got onto the phone and I talked about the Channel Tunnel rail link going through the Barking. And I talked about the housing we needed in Barking and all the local issues. And at the end of this conversation, the journalist said to me, and what are you going to do for the Jewish community? And I think my reply was, she reminded me the other day, not a lot. Uh, and actually things have turned out very, very different. Uh, but it was never part of my identity. And it was sort of, you know, and that's really been difficult for me because, you know, I really want to get on with doing my tax justice work. Uh, I'm absolutely committed to equality. And I've had to put a huge amount of energy and time and emotion, emotional energy into uh, fighting within my party the scourge of anti-Jew hatred. It's not just, and it hasn't just been, the existence of that hatred uh, and just how open some of that stuff has been. What has been particularly frustrating, and I say this as, as a non-Jewish person, but as someone who wanted the Labour Party to, be in a, to not be behaving the way it was, mm. simultaneously the abuse happening and the denial of it, and the denial of it seemed in a way, almost crueler than the abuse itself because it, you're effectively being gaslit by yeah. powerful people. Yeah, that's where I thought last week would draw a line in the sand. I thought all these rows about, you know, were we pretending that there was a problem when there wasn't? Were we alleging uh, that there was political interference when there wasn't? Were we weaponizing an issue when we weren't? I thought all those issues could be put to bed by the report. And indeed, when I read the report, we only got it, you know, an hour really before uh, the EHRC uh, published it in uh, 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. When we got it, that I felt a sense of relief. I mean, I felt very churned up on Thursday, but I felt a sense of relief about that because I thought, oh my God, I won't have to keep justifying uh, what I was doing and, uh, and and trying to sort of fend off these attacks that we were simply weaponizing um, anti-Semitism. So I think that, so when Jeremy Corbyn then made the statement, you know, within half an hour of, of Keir Starmer making a very welcome, strong and important statement, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'll just take, tell you about that because I thought, you know, I'd been thinking for a couple of weeks before then, what do I say about Jeremy? Because I had said he was an anti-Semite and I've, there's been absolutely no evidence at all for me to change my mind from the, uh, when I made that statement now, you know, two and a half years ago, two, two and a half years ago. So I thought, what do I say? And then I thought, actually, he has become irrelevant. He's um, a figure of the past and he's not important for the present and the future. And that was how I was going to handle it. And when the report was published and, you know, we did our Jewish Labour Movement press conference, that was the sort of line I took. And then in the middle of that, he made this statement uh, and I just couldn't work out. I mean, I couldn't. He's obviously absolutely stubborn beyond belief. I think there's a deep arrogance underpinning it. Um, um, I think there's a bit of a lack of understanding, to put it politely. Uh, and I think he's an anti-Semite. And that was the sort of conclusion I came to. And then, of course, when he'd made that statement, I didn't, I didn't want him to become the story. The story was about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the way it had infected the culture of the Labour Party, and the steps we needed to take 
to root it out. I didn't want to become the story, but equally, one couldn't ignore what he had said. So we had this drama, <laughs> all of us that were there from Jewish labor movement, as to how we would respond. And I just felt I was about to go on the world at one, and I just felt I just couldn't go on there and in any way um, uh, do anything but say he had to be suspended. And just literally within two, two minutes before uh, I went on the World at One or the World at One started, we heard that the leader's office had suspended, indeed suspended him. So, I mean, I was sort of relieved about that. I think Keir was completely boxed into a corner. I think he had no alternative to take the action he did, particularly because the two statements were, statements were so juxtaposed um, and, you know, Jeremy completely defied what Keir Starmer had said and denied some of the conclusions and findings of the report. There was absolutely no option but to take that. But I still think he should never become the story. He should have just shut up. Jeremy Corbyn, of course, would say that he's not an anti-Semite. He'd say he's got a history of campaigning against anti-Semitism and all forms of racism. Um, he would, uh, he would, he would defend himself, wouldn't he? I mean, what is it? What, what was it for you that made you think he was? Well, again, this is really interesting because um, I've known Jeremy since 1983 when he first became the MP for Islington North, and I was the leader of council in uh, in Islington. And my memory of him in those days was of. Uh, a guy who was more concerned about what was happening in Nicaragua than what was happening on the streets uh, and in the community in Islington. He never caused me any trouble when I was sort of lead for the, you know, you tend to get tensions between uh, the council and the MPs. He was never guilty of creating any tensions there. So I sort of had a benign view of him, really. I had a benign view of him. And then I just will tell you this, because this is another interesting story. I left Islington in 92. And I didn't really get back, go back and get involved in those politics. I don't think I talked, I hardly talked to Jeremy when I became an MP. He was always part of this sort of fringe, rather crazy group that, you know, part of the big Labour family, but nobody that you really took very seriously. And then in about 2014, when I was chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Islington North asked me to come and talk about the work I'd been doing there, and particularly around my tax justice work. So I went and Jeremy introduced me, and it was the first time I'd heard him speak for 20 years. Wow. I mean, this is quite extraordinary. And what was so striking, and this was before he was leader of the Labour Party, is he used exactly the same words and exactly the same uh, 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 thoughts that he'd expressed when he was an MP 20 years ago. He had never developed or evolved over time to respond to changing circumstances. So... To fast forward, when did I realize he was so anti-Semitic? In 2015, when people said to me he's anti-Semitic, I said, no, he's not. No, he's not. He's, a, he's an anti-racist. And indeed, I had said the same about Ken Livingstone in the 1980s. I'd had a lot to do with Ken Livingstone in the 1980s. And Ken Livingstone was interesting. My maiden name is Oppenheimer. And Ken Livingstone used to sneer about my name to me at meetings, uh, you know, as if I was one of the South African diamond Oppenheim, out of the diamond Oppenheim family. And I remember coming home and saying to my husband at the time, I think the guy's being anti-Semitic. And then thinking, no, he can't be, he's an anti-racist. You know, and sort of, in a way, I was naive. 
and I, you know, half got it, but I didn't really admit to it then in the 80s. And I suppose it was a bit the same with Jeremy in 2015. Uh, and then as time moved on, I mean, I just got so much abuse. I got, you know, so suddenly from not having, not having my Jewish identity be part of my politics, it was forced to become part of my politics. And then, of course, we had endless cases of, you know, the cartoon uh, that he supported, the photo of him with the wreath laying, the uh, the the bit of the uh, clip that we had of him at a meeting where he called he said Jews had no sense of irony, uh, no sense of history. Uh, there was just increasing evidence, and you know I got to realise that it's not what people said; it's how they acted which defined them. Uh, and um, he was an anti-Semite. And I'll just tell you one other thing. I, I gave a talk to a group called the Maccabean Group, who are a funny group of uh, old, they are pretty, you know, they're getting on in their age, old Jews who in the days you Jews couldn't join the clubs. They couldn't join the Reform Club and the Athenaeum. It was closed to Jews. So they set up this Maccabean society and they asked me to do an after-dinner speech for them now. So they're a bunch of, you know, very bright people from academia, from lawyers, from the health service, all in the, in, in the key professions. And at the end of the, my giving a talk, this guy comes up to me who was a consultant at one of our London teaching hospitals. And he told me this story, which just reinforced my view. He had uh, overseen a program of inoculation uh, for, the Muslim, for the Muslim community who were going back for the Hajj to um, uh, Pakistan. Um, and um, as a thank you for having overseen that community, uh, uh, overseen that program, they'd asked him to some event, uh, and he, uh, which was held in a West London hotel. He'd gone along to that event, was, have, was, was standing at the side, very few non-Muslims there. In walks Jeremy Corbyn, come, comes over and says, oh, I see they've got the Jewish lobby here. I know. And that was sort of a pretty, and I thought all of that confirmed to me that um, Corbyn was an anti-Semite. I think it goes, you know, in a way, one has to understand the form of modern anti-Semitism in the hard left to understand why he can proclaim he's against anti-Semitism, but act as an anti-Semite. So I think it is complicated and I think it stems, I mean, I will, I, I put it down to sort of three things. One is that, um, you know, the hard left is deeply opposed to capitalism. They hate capitalism. They want to overthrow capitalism. They say, then they see the Jews as being uh, the enablers of capitalism, the financiers who facilitate capitalism. And that, uh, that, loathing of capitalism very quickly morphs through that into anti-Semitism. I think that's one aspect. And then the, the, the um, Israel-Palestine conflict has become an absolutely totemic uh, symbol of um, terrible Western imperialism, you know, anti-West, anti-imperialism. That is what typifies it. And there's a complete inability there to recognize uh, the fact of your Jewish identity, being a supporter of Zionism and being a supporter of the Netanyahu regime. So I 
do support, I'm a Zionist, I would proclaim myself as a Zionist, believe that the Jews have the right and, uh, of the security of their own homeland. But I have been a consistent critic down the years of um, various acts of various regimes in Israel, in particular the Netanyahu regime. I think the hard left can make that distinction. And then the final element is this sort of growing uh, bunch of sort of tropes about, you know, the Jews are all responsible, they control the media, they were responsible for 9-11, and all these sort of big examples. And that sort of complex set of beliefs becomes very quickly anti-Jew hatred. You uh, confronted Jeremy Corbyn behind the speaker's chair, uh, and there, there, are, there are differing accounts of whether, <laughs> or indeed what you said to him, uh, and indeed his reaction. So take us through it from your perspective. How, how did that unfold? Well, that, it, 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 what happened was that we were on one of these endless evenings when we were voting on Europe. So we had constant votes. We were all in the house, uh, waiting for the votes on Europe or hanging around between the votes on Europe. And Jeremy had chosen that day to have a, me a meeting of the National Executive Committee to discuss whether or not they would adopt the internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism, the IHRA de definition, and they had rejected it. And I was pretty fuming and I was behind the speaker's chair. Uh, Jeremy was in the chamber with two of my mates young men and i said to them and i do swear every now and then i said i am going to calling an effing anti-semitic racist so they said go on margaret go for it and um, um Austin. I... <laughs> mm. <laughs> I've, never, I've never actually revealed who it was it was a couple of young men who were my friends who are my friends and um, um, I, uh, they said, go on for it, go for it. And I said, no, I'm going to wait till he comes out. They scuttled away and I hadn't realized what they were, that one of them was going to uh, uh, inform, the, inform the Huffington Post. Uh, and I waited till Jeremy came out. And then I actually did say to myself, the last thing I said to myself is don't swear because that'll undermine the... Uh, strength of your argument so i didn't swear but i did call him an anti i called him an anti-semitic racist to his face uh he said he sort of is very passive aggressive so he doesn't really engage um uh he said he was sorry i felt like that and then said i should look at page 64 of his the report that had gone to the nec and i said it's not what you say it's what you do jeremy and then i said and you've made uh, uh, the Labour Party, a hostile environment for Jews. And I was pretty shaky after all this. I mean, I remember, I think Caroline Flint gave me a glass of water and various people took me off to look after me. And then I went off to the theatre to see something. So I switched my phone off, uh, enjoyed a very good play at the Young Vic, came out, put the phone on, back on and realised the world had gone ballistic and that somebody had told the press. Um, so um, I went home. Um, and I had terrible, terrible toothache. And the next morning I had to go off to the dentist to get my to, uh, to get this infection seen to. And um, I took one of my assistants, parliamentary assistants with me because the phone was going ballistic. Uh, and I was sitting literally in the dentist's chair as he was trying to treat me. 
Um, and my assistant comes in and says, Luciana's on the phone. She's got to talk to her. And I said, I can't talk to her. I'm sorry. I've got this treatment going on. He, she said, no, no, Luciana says she must talk to you now. And she told me that they were going to suspend me. And I can't tell you, it was very weird how I, was, I went into sort of shock in a way. Because, you know, even then I'd been a member for, you know, well over 50 years. Uh, and um, I'll tell you what went through my head was, was sort of, God, I'm not going to be able to go back to Barking and talk to my, the, the Labour Party that I had created in Barking uh, uh, and who were my sort of friends and colleagues, you know. So it was a sort of stark, horrible, horrible moment until I gathered myself and then decided I was going to fight back. I was going to fight back and not allow it to happen. So when you initially talked to him, behind the speaker's chair i mean there's a, there's a there's a bit of space there it's where mps sort of file in and file out at one end of the, of the chamber was there anyone else there i mean these you know whenever you confront someone or you're in a confrontation it, it's all over quite quickly you know the, the kind of adrenaline rushes um did it feel like it was just sort of over in a flash or was it a protracted conversation you had with him um it's very difficult to engage with him it's really hard because of this sort of passive aggressive attitude that he has. So he was there with Andy McDonald, who stood by him, who I think was the guy who then put in a complaint about me. And there were various, I mean, Caroline Flint was there, Angela Regal was there, there were various people, Mary Cray was around, you know, because people were coming out of, it was literally where you come out of having voted. We were in that corner there. So I didn't deliberately choose to make it public. But I had, in fact, I hadn't, I hadn't gone into the chamber and confronted him in the chamber because I thought, but this is what the lobby is for. This is what we do in the lobby. So it didn't seem to me totally wrong to, to, to use that as an occasion. And I mean, certainly, you know, he and I had ne never really talked. Um, um, uh, so um, there were people around. I mean, I know that because people then took me off to have, a, you know, this glass of water and calmed me down after I was obviously... Um, pretty sort of shaky at the uh, at the end of it but it probably didn't last more than two or three minutes because he wouldn't engage he wouldn't really engage and the decision to suspend you was it didn't only seem cruel it, it seemed completely counterproductive I mean, was he aware that i mean how could he not be aware that you're about to be suspended i mean <laughs> what what did you get any insight at all into his view of that whether that was something that he'd supported and, and was it run by him did he ever talk to you about it afterwards did he say look it's the party that's suspending you not me or anything like that no no i mean i think they were looking for an opportunity you have to remember that i'd been party to the motion of no confidence in corbyn in 2016 so i had form um in terms of opposition to to uh, his leadership um uh, and I had been vocal in uh, expressing my horror at the growing cancer of anti-Semitism in the party. So I had form on that. Um, I think they saw it as an opportunity to get rid of me. Um, they took action on Ian Austin the same evening. He had shouted at um, Ian Lavery, I think, you know. What, and one of the clear things, I mean, what was so interesting was after I came out of the dentist and sort of calmed down and things, I got inundated with... Um, offers of support from uh, uh, various professionals, particularly lawyers. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm gonna take this on. 
and I mean, I was absolutely brilliantly served by James Libson and his team at Mishcon. Um, and um, uh, what they tried to do, I mean, Nick Brown, you know, the, obviously the chief whip didn't want to row. That's his job. Uh, everybody tried to get me to apologize and I just wouldn't apologize. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to back down. I don't think, I think, you know, that's what the lobby's for. I did it to his face. I didn't do it behind his back. People are much ruder about him behind the, his back, you know, and I just thought I'm going to tell him to his face. I'd known him anyway since 90, you know, I'd known him for, for you know, 40 years, 70, 83, so getting on. It was a lot, I'd known him for a long, long time. So it would have been, and it's just not my style to do those sort of things behind people's faces. So I didn't feel I'd done anything wrong, but I was. I did refuse to apologise. I think there were various intermediaries who were, I think trying to get an apology out of me to sort of bring closure. And I wasn't actually, ironically, you'll love this, Matt. I quite, I wouldn't have minded having a proper tribunal because I could then have demonstrated in the tribunal uh, hearing why I called him an anti-Semite. I think it, I think it would have been all lost to him and gained to me for the course. Maybe had we done that, maybe we could have uh, forced a different approach in the Labour Party. Maybe we never ended up with the EHRC um, investigation. You never know. There's a fascinating audio of a, of a meeting you have with him and, and one of his staff where um, you're, you're putting these points to him. And there's a bit where he says, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he says something like, I hear the complaint. Or, or something, he uses a phrase like that where he's almost like saying, I hear what you're saying, but I'm basically not going to acknowledge yeah. whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that meeting that, must have been that, surreal that's passive aggressive that is passive aggressive isn't it so um um i think what then happened was you know we got through the summer they apologized i mean even up to the apology that in in the end they dropped they didn't they dropped the case <laughs> and i was at a in a and this all happened during august I was in a pool, or a, beside a pool in Spain, and I knew it would happen when I was in Spain. Um, uh, and, um, you know, the lawyer rings me up and says, they're withdrawing the action. And I said, oh, my God, I knew they'd do that when I was away. And I said, <laughs> they're then going to claim, they're then gonna claim I, I've apologised. So uh, she said, well, we'll, we'll, accept the, we'll accept the fact they withdraw. Obviously, we want to accept that. Uh, and I said, well, watch and wait and see what they put out as uh, their interpret." And of course, within half an hour, they'd put out that I'd apologised and therefore they'd withdrawn the action against me. So in, I rang the lawyer back and said, I'm not having this. And within half an hour, Mishkan drafted the most stunningly wonderful letters. I put them all on Twitter. Stunningly wonderful letters saying there has been no apology. They have just withdrawn the action. And we got that up in time for actually nobody to be misled uh, on, on, on whether or not um, it was an apology. And there was something else you asked me in the question, which I have not now probably not answered properly. Oh, it was about the meeting where, you know, oh, with yes. the audio. So after all that was over, um, uh, he did start meeting. I mean, there were four women, really. There were four women Jewish MPs who we were at the heart of the campaign against anti-Semitism, you know, Luciana Berger, Louise Ellman, Ruth Smith and myself. It was the four women. It's interesting how that, that's how it, that's how it was. Um, and um, he obviously was advised to start 
making overtures to us. So he was asking us in one by one. And I didn't want to reject that. But equally, and this is the, I didn't want that meeting to be misinterpreted. I didn't want them to be able to say things that I'd never said. And that was why I recorded the meeting. I recorded actually for self-preservation, not because I thought I'd catch him out. I just wanted a record of what I had actually said at the meeting. So uh, we went in and we did put a telephone on the table and recorded the meeting. And um, what? And then the following Sunday, I can't remember that happened on a Wednesday or Thursday, the one week. And then following Sunday, the Observer ran a story in which they. Uh, uh, alleged political interference with the pro with the process and I had had complete undertakings from him that there was no such interference and from his the head of his office Amy what was her name Amy can't remember her surname but she was the head um, Amy Jackson Amy Jackson I had complete undertaking from her that you know absolutely we'd never do it we'd never do it and I just thought that's shocking they, they deliberately lied. They deliberately lied. And I think that was just sort of, to, you know, it was another indication of their ruthless. I mean, this is the new gentler kind of politics, really. Um, their ruthless um, uh, determination to deny. It's what we started this conversation on, you know, deny the existence of a real problem. Um, at all. And that's why I released that tape. I know I got into a bit of trouble of that and people thought it was a bad thing to do, but it was, I'd never intended to release it for that purpose. I had just done it to protect myself, just how the book, how it turned out in the end. How surreal was that meeting? I mean, you're sat there with someone who you think is an anti-Semite and, and the head of his office. I mean, what, how long was it? Was the, was the atmosphere awkward? Was there any kind of, you know, do they make you a cup of tea and bring you biscuits or is it all oh, a bit yeah, cold? It was all like that. It was about, probably about an hour. Okay. That's a long time to be in a enclosed and space. The first, and the first thing, I live in Jeremy Corbyn's constituency. So, uh, you know, and I had known him since 1983. So the first, you know, in a way, quite sensibly, the ice was broken by a discussion about Islington and, you know, Highbury and blah, 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 and various sort of uh, local. That's how we started the discussion. Um, and that was quite warm and, and okay. Uh, you know, it did break the ice a bit. And then I did, uh, you know, <laughs> anybody who knows me, I don't sort of mince my words. So, I mean, we had a discussion about Chris Williamson. Uh, he At that time, it was, the issue was really about his behavior and ironically that day they did finally I can't remember they suspended him I think they'd suspended him let him back in again and they suspended him again uh, and I'd said that you know that would I expected that to happen we had a discussion about um, his relationship with the Jewish community or his lack of relationship with the Jewish community except for Jewish Voice for Labour um, uh, and no relationship with Jewish Labour Movement, that is the oldest affiliated organisation uh, within the Labour Party. Uh, we had a discussion about um, uh, his, uh, you know, what was happening to Luciana and to Louise in particular. Louise Elman in particular was having a torrid, torrid time up in Liverpool, and nobody had listened to her um, complaints about this absolutely obscene. A cartoon that she had of a picture of the statute of Statue of Liberty, and there was this Jewish 
um, uh, sort of snake or something. So it's like something. a face-hugging alien, isn't it, with the Star of yeah. David on it? It's yeah, a horrendous image. Yeah, uh, you know, throttling our liberty. It was a horrible image. And they had said, the party machinery had said there was nothing racist about it. And it was terrible, absolutely terrible. Eventually, she went only after we'd raised it and raised it, the Parliamentary Labour Party, did they take action against that? And she was a Labour Party member. Um, he, he went on and on about how we're speeding up the system, how we, you know, it was very sort of bureaucratic in its sort of content, the discussion that we had there. Uh, but there was this absolute denial of any um, interference in the system, which, you know, if you just look at that report last week, a third of the, third of the sample, 23 out of 70, I can't remember, it's something like that, 23 out of 70 of the cases, which they only took as a sort of snapshot, a sample of the uh, complaints that had been received by the party of, of, of anti-Semitism from party members. Only a third of those were, uh, a third of those had been, there'd been political interference. And, and after all, everything, you know, even after, I can't remember if it was before or after that meeting, it all morphs a little bit, the, the events, but, you know, I'd given them a, 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 I'd given them 200 complaints or something around that, which was stuff I'd received where there was a clear indication it came from the left, you know, hashtag Jeremy Corbyn for leader, that sort of thing, or hashtag. Uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. There was always a hashtag that made you think it came from the left. You couldn't be sure. And, you know, they wouldn't talk to me about that. They then claimed that, I can't remember, only a handful were Labour Party members. I'd never believed that. And to this date, I don't think that they ever really investigated those 200 complaints. And even if they did, they didn't treat them seriously, even where they admitted that it was a Labour Party member. You know, they gave them sort of a warning or something like that and there was pretty horrible abuse on that in there and when, when you're in the meeting and they tell you that there's no political interference they're looking you in the eye and saying this did you believe them hmm. that's a hard question i couldn't disprove it at that time I mean, I think the answer is I heard it. And I never expected for it to be challenged so quickly. I couldn't, I mean, I had to accept it because I couldn't disprove it. But that's a hard question. And when you're raising the fact that some of this stuff comes from the left, would he ever say, oh, I'm so embarrassed when they use my name or, oh man, what are they, what's wrong with these people? I don't want these sort of people supporting me. No, he always makes the same statement. He has a very limited vocabulary and a limited set of phrases that he uses. So it's always, um, I'm opposed to anti-Semitism and all forms of racism. He always couples it together. Uh, uh, and uh, then he, you know, this thing that's hardly any, but one is, you know, even one is too much. Does he really mean that? But, you know, that's the sort of... Uh, so he always uses the same phrasing. Always uses the same... I mean, what he tried to demonstrate, I suppose, coming away from that meeting, thinking back on it, was that he was totally uninvolved. That what he did was he sent every anybody who did complain to him, uh, the complaint was... Uh, uh, automatically trans, uh, transmitted to the Labour to the Labour Party and he the leader's office didn't get involved that was a lie when that you ask him lie. about the 
Jewish Labour movement, as you say, the oldest affiliated movement in the Labour Party. Would he say, oh, yes, I must speak to them? Or, you know, what was his excuse or what was his line? Just didn't respond. You know what? So many people, I've asked so many people over the last few years about PLP meetings. And and so many Labour people say, I say, what was it like at that PLP meeting where you get up and you have a go? And they say, oh, you just didn't say anything. And it just seems like such an odd thing that he would basically hear you say it and then... It feels so surreal to not say anything, particularly in a small meeting, in a small room. There's only three or four of you in there, and it's such an important matter at hand. Yeah. But he just, what, does he look at the wall? Does he shuffle his shoes? Does he pretend he hasn't heard? What's his kind of, how does he behave? It's this, the only way I can describe it, the story to come back, is passive-aggressive. So he's... hmm. Yeah, hmm. and then you sort of wait, and you get nothing back, and then you go on to the next point. I mean, that's how it sort of it's sort of you know I'd got my list of assertions, you know, that I was putting I was putting down, and um, he just didn't respond. I mean, I you know it, it's quite interesting this because I you know I I often think back. I had a similar confrontation or a similar disagreement with Ed Miliband on the evening that he uh, he changed the rules of how we uh, selected the leader because you know we only heard about six we heard about five or six o'clock at night that they were going to put it at the NEC the next morning and again I was absolutely furious because having lived through the 80s it was so bleeding obvious it was going to read to uh, it was a mechanism for enabling the hard left to try and recapture control of the party yeah so i confronted him in the lobby ironically and said this is the most stupid ridiculous outrageous thing you're doing and all you're doing is allowing uh allowing the hard left back into back into uh trying to control the party and the difference between the two incidents is just instructive so again i've known ed forever um uh and he engaged with me he did engage with me so we had a row about it not a row we had a sort of it wasn't some hostile in the end a frank exchange of opinions thank you that's a bit frank exchange of opinions much better way of putting it so we had not you know we had frank and at the end he said you know we we didn't we didn't agree at the end he said well margaret i'm leader you're gonna have to do what i say and that's true actually that's fair enough but he'd listened to me. And the difference between that and Corbyn's inability to really engage is just stark. Um, you know, is it that he doesn't like, I don't think it's that he doesn't, if p- people say he doesn't like conflict, well, how do you marry that with his reaction last week to the outcome of the EHRC? You know, if he doesn't want conflict, why on earth didn't he just shut up? Uh, so I don't think it is that he doesn't like conflict. It's just that he is horribly stubborn and arrogant, I think, and can't, you know, and isn't very good at engaging, can't engage intellectually in, in an argument. I mean, the Jewish Labour movement is bad enough that, that he didn't have a, it sounds like any sort of relationship oh. with them, but particularly with individuals who were, who were victims of this stuff. And Luciana is obviously the one that... Uh, people talk about first. I mean, she was put through hell, as were you and, and as were the other people that we talked about. He didn't phone her once during that period. I mean, when you raise the way she was being treated, because, you know, when the whole uh, 
independent group thing happens, I would speak to those people who go, oh, well, you know, I understand Luciana going, but not the others. You're like, well, if you understand her going, surely you understand the others going in solidarity, if nothing else. You know, there was a kind of acceptance in a way. Oh, well, you know, it's different for Luciana. And yet she didn't get phone calls. She wasn't checked on. There was no cover given at all, it seems, from the centre of the organisation for this woman who was highly vulnerable, pregnant, and was being targeted by so many people. Yeah. Did he ever show any embarrassment about the about her treatment? No. Nope. Any of them, really? I mean, I think all of them. You know, all of the all of those women. I mean, I, the, the difference for me was that I and I suppose Ruth Smith was in the same position. Is that I I was never. You know, I know I was subject to a reselection, but on the whole, I had my party with me. I mean, I'll tell you actually, Matt. It's worth telling you this story. Is that. It, you know, the whole thing about the action against me was July, August. September, I go back to my first general committee on September. It was right, the first week in September. And I suddenly realised, oh, my God, I haven't really engaged with a, a, a large group of local members on this issue. Oh, and I haven't fixed it tonight. You know, yeah. I haven't sort of and said, come. So I was driving there thinking, damn, I should have done that. And I walked into the room and there were 300 people there. You know, it was it was a it was it was a big meeting, and third about a third of third of our membership is now Muslim. So I thought, oh my God, they've all come! I'm going to get terribly attacked tonight. So I just thought, what can you do? Say it as it is. So I just sort of told the story of the summer and my feelings and my background. I hadn't talked about my background and my family ever before at a, at a Barking Labour Party meeting, um, and I get a standing ovation. Um, and then Muslim after Muslim gets up and says, we completely understand what you went through because it's just like Islamophobia. Now, isn't that an irony? That is an irony because, you know, this, the hard left think they're defending the Muslims against the Jews in some way through, through the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. But actually, on the, you know, here at the heart of, you know, the ground in, in Barking and Dagenham, they... They completely, they went, they, they could, they could uh, relate to it. They had empathy for it and they had an understanding of it. So it is quite extraordinary that, isn't it? It's just a sort of total misunderstanding of the hard left in their silly little sort of cocoon of really the reality on the ground in the party. Now, I can't remember what that came out of. You were asking me what? Did I, oh, that? I can't remember that. Was, I think it was about... Uh... You know what, I've forgotten as well, which is terrible. But I, what, what I would, it'd be nice to sort of, not sort of overly dwell on all these stressful experiences, but you've had such a, you know. Oh, just, they treated Luciana and all. Yes, so I had the support. I had the support. Of, I did have the support of my party, despite, you know, the reselection later on, uh, which caught me unawares, you know, for which I take full responsibility. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, Luciana's treatment... Liverpool has always been, Liverpool's always been incredibly difficult politics from the Derek Hatton days. I mean, I remember Derek Hatton and all, you know, I had to deal with him in the 80s. So Liverpool was always a, you know, difficult, difficult, difficult situation. Uh, but both Louise and Luciana both come from, came from Liverpool parties. And, you know, they should, I know that was what I asked, I asked Jeremy. I said, you should suspend Louise's party because she was having a terrible, terrible time. And he didn't do that. You know, that was sort of one of my asks in that meeting. So, you know, they Did could he say, have... oh, I'll, I'll consider that. We'll look into it. 
No, you didn't take that to anything. He didn't respond in a positive way to any of the suggestions I made. And what were the, I mean, other, the suggestions? other suggestions? I'd made at an early, early, early stage on the uh, on the ARA definition because just you know I want to be able to attack the regimes in Israel when they uh, when they act in a in a in a way which is anathema to me. So. You know the the creation of two tiers of citizenship. There's the the, uh, the the way they're handling the settlement issue. All that sort of stuff is outrageous. I want to be able to say so. So whether or not the definition enables you to do that, I mean it's really a lawyer's paradise. Uh, you know, one group of lawyers say yeah, it does, the other group of lawyers say it doesn't. But to use that as an excuse for not. Uh, adopting the definition at a time when labor has, is losing very rapidly losing the trust of the jewish community is just absolutely potty hostile politics and the obvious thing to do and i think i said that to him at that meeting what i would have done would have been a convene a forum where you bring uh, palestinian groups together with jewish uh, communal groups here in the uk and you have a conversation and you sort it out uh, and that would have been a way through that uh, difficulty. I mean, I think difficult for the Labour Party to do it, but it would have been a way in which you might have come to an acceptable solution without a row on two sides. And, you know, allowing those Palestinian flags, that was, what was that, 2018? The Palestinian flags being raised in the back of the... Um, back of the conference was such a two fingers up at us. It was not so... just in the back, in the front, and in the middle. The the, the flags were just oh. seemed to be all over. The... One wonders where all those flags came from. Well, who placed them? There? Mm. Quite the EU flag. Someone tried to unfurl an EU flag and was uh, hastily dealt with. <laughs> well, I wasn't there. I that was the word first time I didn't go to a Labour Party conference in Liverpool so you know it was a good excuse not to, not to go but Luciana did and had to have police protection so what then Ruth, really, uh, she had to move home and I think probably the most awful thing about her is when she went to that hearing you know the disciplinary hearing uh, Mark Wadsworth that disciplinary hearing mm. um, she asked for protection there because it was pretty horrible for her at that time and uh, the Labour Party said it wasn't their job to provide, to ensure her safety. That was down to uh, the Jewish community if she felt any threat to her person. I mean, outrageous stuff, just un inexplicably hostile. And, um, you know, anti-Jew hatred. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. 
Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. So now we have a new leader who uh, yep. has suspended the previous leader. I'm talking to Jewish friends in the Labour Party, reading what uh, the JLM and others have, have been saying since Keir Starmer took over. It feels as though the Jewish community on the left, the, the mainstream left, is welcoming of Keir Starmer, is impressed so far. I mean, is there is there anything more he, he could have done up to this point, do you think? No, I think since he's been leader, his record is uh, is great. And, you know, um, I didn't, I voted, uh, I didn't vote for him. Um, uh, but, you know, I think I, I'm, I've been growing, you know, particularly last Thursday, I was very, you know, I was very heartened by the way he responded both to the report and then to Jeremy Corbyn's absurd intervention. So I, I'm really, really heartened by it. Um, I think two, two things. Are, I wish they'd got on with setting up the independent complaints mechanism before we had the EHRC report. I think that, you know, we've been sort of treading water uh, since he was elected on that. And that's clearly one of the major asks which has to be established. So they've got to get on with it, you know. Uh, and my understanding from various people is that the complaints mechanism, whilst it might be a bit better, is still completely dysfunctional. So they've got to sort that out. Um, uh, I, th I think that, and, um, Beyond that, I mean, it's, it isn't, this isn't going to be ended. That's why I said, yes, it was the beginning of the end. I mean, I, I was speaking last night at a, at a, a this sort of Sunday night um, talks at synagogues, and I was doing last night, absolutely, probably 250 people on, it was obviously online, but 250 people there, probably, but obviously because of last week as well. Um, and rebuilding trust in the Jewish community is going to take one heck of a long time. And I think what's so sad about it, Matt, is that if you look up Jewish MPs on Google, you'll see, first of all, there are many more of them. But if you look at the sort of pre-1975, the 90%, I mean, literally nine out of 10 Jewish MPs were Labour MPs. It was the natural home for Jews. Today, I'm the last, I mean, in effect, the last Labour woman Jewish MP. There's um, Charlotte Nichols, who's, sort of, who's also there. But, uh, you know, out of, out of those of us that fought, I'm the last one left. That's a terrible, terrible indictment of uh, the way Jews now approach the Labour Party and are suspicious of it and felt threatened by it. And have you spoken to the new leader much since he took over? Um, yeah, to be fair, he rang me. I think I was one of his early phone calls, uh, so for which I'm grateful because, because particularly I hadn't, I hadn't actually supported him in the, uh, you know, I wanted a woman. Uh, and I thought Lisa Nandy was, uh, you know, um, fitted that. Fitted well, I, I guess by a process of elimination, you hadn't voted for Rebecca Long-Bailey. <laughs> that is true. I, I did go Lisa then, Keir. That was my, that was how I, I, I voted. Um, uh, so he did. He was very generous. He rang me. Uh, we exchanged texts every now and then. I've had calls from his office, you know, uh, and yeah, there is sort of, you know, he's busy. Yeah, there's been open. There's so that must, that, that must feel That's reassuring. Yeah, that is very different. For heaven's sake. I mean, there's Jeremy, who'd known me since 83. He could never pick up the phone and ring me, could he? 
<laughs> what about what about with Keir Starmer then? Not just his action on on anti-Semitism, and of course, that is all really to to be seen, uh, as we say. You know, this is about how the next few years unfold the Labour Party's relationship with uh, complainants and the Jewish community more broadly. What about Keir Starmer politically then? You know, taking anti-Semitism out of all of this, just in terms of the sorts of Labour values you represent and the direction you feel the Labour Party should be going in in order to win an election, does he feel like a step in the right direction? And, and do you think he will go far enough in order to, to make Labour win? Well, is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. And I, it took me some months, Matt, to actually get used to not feeling threatened and not feeling that it really did. It was very weird that, you know, you I woke obviously when Jeremy resigned, that was sort of a bit of relief. But it just mm. it becomes so much part of my day-to-day living that I felt, you know, people were challenging me, threatening me, being horrible to me. It took me it took me a, a really a few months to sort of drop that which is probably why I felt last last week I didn't feel people said you must feel vindicated or you feel I didn't feel all that I just felt churned up the only can describe it is churned up last Thursday Friday that was do you think you're fully over all that or is it or is it too early um I think it's still a bit I mean you've you know I go into I you know like last night I do this zoom meeting and you can feel the hostility still to labor and I got some hostility. I mean, to be fair, I got some pretty hideous hostility from uh, Jewish people to, to taking the decision to stay in the party. That must have been so um, difficult for you. Yeah. So, you know, all my mates were in, you know, I was part of, uh, I was part of that little group that was thinking about how do we move forward? But, but I've just been a member, party member of the party. I'm tribally loyal. I'm tribal, I'm tribal about it. I wasn't prepared to give it up. I wasn't prepared to give up the fight. And there I do feel vindicated. I think that was the sort of, um, uh, as it turned out, the right decision to take. And on Keir, you know, we've got to see on the wider agenda. I mean, I, I talk about this, you know, I think we are in a really difficult place for Labour politically. Um, uh, you look at those seats, I mean, it's not just the red wall seats, you look at, I can't remember the percentage now, but it's 10% of the seats where we got majorities of less than 2,000, 25% seats, my figures may be wrong, Matt, but something like that, that we got majorities of less than 5,000. Uh, so we have to, I think, completely transform the way we work. And I think I've got something to contribute to that debate over the way that we uh, took on the BMP between 2006 and 2010 and how that I just do my politics in a completely different way today from when I did it before and I think you've got to rebuild trust when you've lost that trust and that means actually engaging with people in a completely different way so there's all that going on and then I also think that in the days of Blair and Brown and all that it was pretty easy to triangulate about people's economic self-interest around the wider support, you know, between traditional working class support and the sort of middle class support that we had, uh, who were more in, you know, nowadays there is such a conflict between, you know, uh, in values and identity uh, reflected in the Brexit vote and, uh, uh, you know, whether it's about, you know, our cons- 
take uh, take something that's sort of you know trans the, the the transsexual debate which is sort of you know live and important in some quarters is just puts you know it, people can't think why we're dealing with it in the red wall seats or in working class communities like mine embarking and you just there is a sort of the value trying to triangulate those values is a much harder harder thing to bear harder thing to do so uh i think kia's got a massive mountain to climb i think we've got to transform the way we do politics i think there is a route through it uh we've got to make ourselves relevant around uh you know issues ironically now it's not just you know people don't just lose elections we have got to provide a value and hope which is what corbyn did in 2015. we've got to provide a sort of hope for people who feel left out and who are dispossessed and who are victims of of all the terrible things that the conservative government will do in fact my real feeling last thursday was you know what a waste what a waste five years when we've sort of been locked into this internal destructive battle around important because it was around the soul of the Labour Party and what we stood for and the values that we held to. But what a waste. And, you know, I now look at Barking and Dagnum, where half the kids, half the children I'm Barking and Dagnum are in absolute poverty as measured, you know, in, in the government's measurement measurement of that you look at the shambles over covid the horrors of the economy the disasters of the brexit negotiations and you just think it could have been different so um uh you know i think keir's got a task he hasn't built up that sort of vision for the future yet i hope he will but what he's done in relation to uh uh the past is in the, you know the, the anti-semitism has been really strong and the other thing i've got hope for just to say this is actually all my mates are now on the front bench and that is brilliant that is completely brilliant so lots of the talent is now you know they've got to show whether they can do it uh and whether they can perform but they're there so the values that i feel an affinity to are all there on the front you know from rachel reeves to wes streeting to you know, Liz Kendall to Bridget Phillips. I mean, all of them, people who chose not to serve, Peter Kyle, you can go on and on and on. Um, they're there. So, and I think, and I now, I can, you know, A, I talk to them. So hopefully some of the experiences that I, I've had and the insights I've got uh, can support as they develop their program. And also I don't feel ashamed when Labour comes onto the telly or go, is on, on, on the radio. I can sort of feel some pride back in being you know it, it is my home it, i'm sort of feel i'm my part I'm, I'm you know my party i feel at greater ease in my party well that is uh, that's something that should never have been uh, a, a feeling that you didn't have really you should you should never have had to get that feeling back but uh, you mentioned the bnp i don't want this to just be a podcast about all these terrible experiences you've had but that that fight, as you say, from 20, 2006 to 2010, particularly the victory in 2010, what was more stressful for you? What was a harder fight? This fight over Labour's anti-Semitism or, or fighting the BNP? Oh, this fight, without doubt. I mean, in, in an odd way, the fight against the BNP 
turned out to be a really, really positive. Ex- I mean, it was a horrible experience as you're going through it, but it mm. turned out to be a really positive experience. You know, I transformed Barking Labour Party from having been an inward looking, largely white, middle aged trade union men uh, who cared, you know, who settled things behind closed doors and who never looked outwards, a party that never campaigned outwards and was used to sort of weighing the votes in rather than counting them, all that sort of stuff that just didn't relate to the local people. I've transformed that. I look at Barking Labour Party and I feel proud of them now. You know, they're diverse, there are women, there are men, there are, you know, the total age range is a lot of young people who've come into the party. So I feel really proud of that. And I feel proud of how I've changed my pol- the way I do my politics. So, you know, I never, I don't go to town hall shindigs that much, ribbon cut and shindigs. We don't spend time, endless time in closed doors in Labour Party meetings. And everything I do has to pass what I call this little test, the test. Does it help me reconnect? So it's all about reconnecting to your local community. And the techniques, they're not, rocket science they're pretty simple but they're really important so um you know whether it's street meetings coffee afternoons door-to-door campaigning is always i say is the icing on the cake other campaigns but you know i'll ask a thousand people who voted to come and have a cup of tea with me so they hear that communication directly from me mm. they then probably 70 show up and we sit them on round, uh, on small tables and give them an excellent cup of coffee and a chocolate biscuit and a cup of tea. And then I go table to table and we never, it's never me talking about the latest issue that's going in the Westminster bubble. I just say, how's it going? What's top of your agenda? What's bugging you? That sort of thing. And what always comes out of it is everybody's politics starts from the local. So it's what's happening in their very immediate environment, which they'll talk about. So it might be a bit of antisocial behavior, rubbish on the reach, you know, reciting a post box, whatever it is, uh, uh, road humps, you know, but it could also be, as it is for me, often immigration or housing or benefits. So the national issues come out of the local and then you go table to table. So I listen, so I've communicated and I listen and then I bring them all together and we talk about always a local issue first. There's always something that, you know, a couple of issues that come out. Uh, um, and then we talk about the national. So we've had some really powerful exchanges around immigration, really, really powerful exchanges about that. And then I write to everybody again saying, thanks for having me with me. And this is what came out of it. And we'll discuss. I've got a line on immigration, which I put or, you know, uh, but I'll also sort out the local issues. So I then act. So I've communicated, listened, acted, and I then write to them the third time and say, we've sorted out whatever it was. So, and in that very simple way, you rebuild trust. You just rebuild trust. And you can engage in difficult conversations about tough issues like immigration without ever conceding to any racist views, whatever the hard left you. One of the shocking things, Matt, is that the literature I didn't know, realize this, but because I'm, I'm writing this book at the moment, I've got all this literature out from the BM, that the BMP used against me in 2009, 2010. And there was one particularly horrible sort of leaflet that they put out, just full of horrible images and things. And the back page was things, what people say about Margaret. 
and it was just horrid, horrid, horrid stuff. And my person who works with me now said, where do you get that from? So I said, well, it's the BMP literature. And he's been monitoring all my social, social media stuff. And he said, blimey, that has been cut and pasted and used by the hard left to attack you today. So they've literally used the stuff that the BMP used in 2010 by the you know, fascists on the right to attack me today from the left. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? It's terrible. I, I, mean, I remember following it at the time. It, you know, there's, there's years running up to the election and the election itself. Um, and as with, with other places around, you know, I was working for the elected mayor of Stoke around that similar time. We had a BNP problem there. And again, all the things you described, just a really well-organized ground operation doing the, all the simple stuff, but it, that's how you do it. There's no sort of quick shortcut and was what drove them out in the end. What were they like as opponents? I mean, did, did the BNP don't play by the same rules that other parties do? Were they ever personally threatening to you? Um, well, at the first, the important thing is people say we won, we won back the white working class vote. What was really important is we rebuilt trust for the white working class vote. And they then gave me permission, interestingly enough, Matt, to be, I've always been a Remainer, and although two thirds of my constituency were Brexit, I was sort of allowed to do that, you know, I got a little bit of attack, but it didn't, didn't, didn't affect my vote. And, you know, I mean, in fact, I remember one coffee afternoon where I would run out of things to say. And I sort of said, well, I'm about to go and vote in the, in the House of Commons against my party leadership. Do you want to hear why? And they said, oh, no, Margaret, we don't want to hear about Brexit. It's so boring, you know, but it was the sort of permission was given for me to dissent on a key issue, which is why I've always been a bit iffy about, you know, uh, Brexit being a loser. I think it's it was it's much much more complex and and, and uh, than than that. So what were they like? They were um, they were there were a lot of big heavies around them. So they were actually physically quite a threatening presence. Mm. Um, there was a woman who followed me round who did a film of of of, of those that last year which was shown on Channel 4. And she was a tiny, very attractive woman. And she literally did it on her own with a the, with the camera. And I, I kept saying, you've got to be, watch it, Laura. She was called Laura. You've got to watch it, Laura, that they're not. To, and she would go into this sort of BMP stronghold, which was really heavily policed. Um, and um, it looks very threatening. I mean, we went every. I wasn't going to have no-go areas because of the BMP. So there was a cafe they used. In one, and I just deliberately went and had a uh, uh, cup of tea there at lunch breaks quite often. I mean, sort of, you know, I wouldn't let them get away with it. But I think sort of my lasting memory was on, on. So they were threatening, and at one point when I, you know, because I think in a place like Barking, which was transformed overnight from being a white working class community to being a multiracial part of London. Um, if your neighbours suddenly change and your the shops, what's sold in the shops change and the faces of the children change, I think that is unsettling. I think none of us can cope with change. And I think we, ha I had to listen to that. And there was a feeling of unfairness about how you allocate public resources. So housing would be the obvious one. So where you've got a limited public resource and you've got to ration it, people had to feel the rules were fair and they felt they were unfair that you could come in and jump the queue, which is why I said some controversial things about you had to have regard to people's, um, uh, you know, 
the, the length of time they'd spent in a community as one of the factors you had regard to in allocating council housing. Now it's accepted norm. And when I said it in about 2008, it, uh, it was seen as very, very provocative. Um, so, and then the BMP sent me a bunch of flowers when I said that, you know, it was a really horrible sort of thing to do, you know, mm. as if I was saying something, all I was saying is, you know, there's a, what I felt about that was if you could listen to that and understand that you could sort of pierce the sort of bubble of racism that was associated with the feeling of being left behind, which they, which those people had. So that, the, the worst thing I think was on election day when this big, overweight, you know, really big guy uh, said to me, go back to Germany, Margaret, you're not wanted here. Uh, and I just shouted, I, I remember feeling really taken aback, shocked and shouted back, I, mean, I can't do that. They killed all my relatives and just got into the car. But that was, that was sort of, the, you know, and at, at the count, they were pretty abusive. Well, you've only got in on the, on the, on the, minority ethnic vote you know that's the only way you've done it we didn't we convinced the white working class not to vote for the fascist party and griffin it must be so surreal to be that close to someone like that did did yeah. he try and do any small talk at the count god no <laughs> <laughs> i know it sounds like a daft question but sometimes those people try and disarm oh. you or something you know the... no 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 Absolutely. No, no, no. There was none of that. I mean, I had to do one or two. I was, I was always of the view that was another thing that the left attacked me on, that actually you didn't beat them by ignoring them. I didn't believe in that thing that, uh, you know, you give them the uh, legitimacy by engage, I, engaging in debate. You had to engage in debate and beat them democratically. That was really, so, you know, I got very, and that was another horrible one. That was a horrible, horrible moment. Because it was all it was all around the time my husband died as well, so he'd been really ill and he died. And I remember Griffin went on Question Time. Do you remember that? Yes, and, I do. Um, uh, I supported that. I thought, in fact, you know, again, it was the right thing to do because he showed himself up to be an absolute arsehole and you know a fascist. And um, Bonnie Greer, I think, was the one who really, really uh, uh, exposed him. Uh, and I was in this, the, so the morning after I was in, literally, I think Henry had died two or three months ago. So it was still really, really raw. And I was in a studio the following morning in the green room to talk about it. And Diane Abbott was in there. And she sort of said to me, your husband would be absolutely disgusted at the way that you're supporting. I know. And that was a really hard moment. But the way you're supporting uh, what? Ca you know, effectively supporting, campaigning on a platform. Uh, yeah. Griffin being given the platform. And that was such a hard moment. Um, Whoa. Uh, which I sort of find difficult to forgive. Um, uh, but uh, so there's sort of, you know, there were, just, there were hard moments right through that. And of course, Henry dying in the middle, like, you know, was not, was you know, in a way, actually fighting the BMP probably saw me through that too, because it gave me a purpose. It's very difficult fighting the BMP because, I mean, obviously you know this far better than I do, but I was involved in uh, this when I worked in Stoke. Once they start to get elected, yeah, it's different. You don't well, out of nowhere say, let's share a platform with the BMP for no reason. It's once yeah. they start getting a foothold, really at that point, you have to change the way you're dealing with it because no platform in them isn't working. 
and you kind of have to adapt the way you fight them for a brief period to put them out and then you kind of go back but yeah no platforming didn't work in parts of the country at at that time no i mean it's worse than that i think if you know platform them you give them added credibility i mean i genuinely thought that you know and they were clever they were clever locally so they take uh you know a group of men it was always men around um you know and clear the graffiti off the walls you know or you know clear out the of a local pond that had a load of litter in it you know all that that was clever that was clever politics um and they do the fake residence leaflets right it'd be like abbey road residence group and you're like what who is this residence group the night before the election um the executive, the executive, the chief executive of the council was holding a meeting and I went in just to, I can't remember why, I went into, they'd had an away day and I went in and they were seriously preparing for a BNP council the next day. They thought that's where it was going to end up. My God. And I sort of said to them, you've got this wrong. But they said, no, their view was, so I think if we hadn't campaigned, this is really... You know, where, where I feel there's something to learn from my experience in how the Labour Party tackles the red wall seats and all that, you know, the stokes of this world. If we hadn't worked, you cannot do it in the three weeks of a short campaign. You just can't do it. So we should be working now in every seat, in all those red, not just the red wall seats, because we've got to win every, much, much more in you know, Scotland, you know, wherever, south of England, everything that we've got to, that we've got, we should be working now in building trust, we should have our candidates in place really quickly, and we should be working now to um, to uh, rebuild trust. And of course, it's easier if you're incumbent; it's much easier because you have. I had the legitimacy of calling my coffee afternoons and all that sort of stuff. But they had the legitimacy of twelve councillors. They had the, you know, and that was so the council, the old council. I mean, you know, we turned around barking Labour Party, the old council, who sort of, you know. They blamed me. They blamed me for uh, for the BMP getting twelve seats uh, um, because they said I'd given them the oxygen of publicity. Because you know, when I had done a bit of door knocking, it was absolutely clear to me that the BMP were going to that you know it was a it was a protest vote against Labour, but the BMP were going to benefit from that protest vote against Labour absolutely clear to me when i articulated that then it was all my fault that they'd won but, do you think you know, I mean, obviously you successfully drove them out but is that always there at the back of your mind you know in places like stoke or barking do you think this could rear its head again it wasn't that yeah. long ago you know in a different I, and with brexit and things the potential is perhaps always there for a, a, a certain element of the community to support parties like that I never take my foot off the accelerator on local camp. So we're, we're very, very, so my, you know, even now during lockdown, we're doing, we're doing a lot of our, um, our work. Um, you know, I've, we've now got an active outward looking Labour Party, which is so different, but I'm doing coffee, mar- coffee afternoons on, online. I mean, most interestingly is I don't do surgeries anymore. Why not? Because, because it's a lot, it's three hours out of a day. You know, your t- time is precious. And uh, what you want is a really efficient, good casework system. Really, you know, so when people come to you, you've got to be really, really, you've got to respond quickly and effectively and do what you can to, to deal with their problems. But a third of them are probably people who come time and time again. 
what I'd call sort of the obsessive. Um, uh, a third of people who maybe haven't got a vote. So if you're really focused on trying to build the uh, electoral support, doesn't mean you shouldn't help them, but that's where it is. And a third are new cases. So I have a fantastic team. I've, I mean, I've been really, really blessed with really good people. And we're very efficient at dealing with the, with the casework. And we use the casework. I mean, we never let an opportunity slip. Of, if there's a local issue arisen, that arises out of casework, we'll use it for a street meeting or a local campaign of some sort, you know, anything. Uh, you know, a street meeting where you, somebody comes to you moaning about something in their area, you'll write to 250 people, 250 people and say, Margaret will be in your street on Friday dealing with this issue, come and, come and help us sort it out. Uh, and so we do all that. So we, you, we do the casework effectively and people don't really want to know me. They want their case dealt with. That's what they actually want. Uh, where, and I can then use my time much more effectively to communicate with a much wider, wider group of people. So we use the casework, we do the casework, we use the casework. If people really want to see me, of course, we can sort of set up appointments and we do that. Uh, but it's, it's interesting how few people actually want to do that. They just want to see the issue resolved and they want to feel somebody's listened and responded. And then if I have, you know, if I've written to a thousand people and had 70 people come to a coffee afternoon with all the impact that has in the three hours that would have been a surgery, that's far more impactful. So there are things like that. I think surgery is a, a pretty old fashioned way of, of, of uh, relating to your, your community. I mean, cases are hugely important because they tell you about what's going, you know, I'm running a campaign, for example, at the moment that in the middle of COVID, uh, it's taking 13 weeks to get an ordinary blood test in Barking because uh, they, the blood tests used to be run in, in the hospitals. Those became COVID insecure. And the local health authorities have been absolutely useless in setting up alternative systems. So, you know, I've got about three or four people came to me, cases. One, you know, one who had cancer, one who had diabetes, one who had a long... Uh, sort of eye condition which needed regular and one who had pains that needed to be resolved what it was and they all were waiting you know up to 13 weeks for an ordinary blood diagnostic blood test I mean it's completely crazy so that's led to a campaign so I do that the whole time and literally if somebody comes to me moaning about a parking issue we always use that as a local campaign you know, we'll write to 50 people, 100 people and say, we want to sort out the parking. And when you're there and you bring everybody together, you know, you bring your London tra uh, Transport for London or the local council or the coppers or whoever it is who's relevant to the issue. And they are part, they, then the residents are part of the solution as well. So, you know, looking for a few more car parking spaces. Can we put one here? Can we put one there? It's very simple. All politics is local. Who is it who wrote that book? It's an American book, isn't it? I can't remember who wrote it. it begins with T, his name. But it, that's what I've learned. And you, you've just got to, there's a different way of building trust. There's a different way of building trust and doing the job well. Margaret, this has been a masterclass in, in politics in so many different ways as a discipline. I, I can't thank you enough. This has been a, a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Margaret Hodge, whose positivity and, and strength really come through two attributes of hers that have served her very well uh, in dealing with 
at least two really stressful political fights that are also personal. Um, the last five years in the Labour Party and, and that 2010 showdown with the British National Party, two incredible experiences. And I feel, well, I don't feel bad, but you don't want the whole interview to be about these really stressful, negative things, but there's so many lessons to learn from them. Um, if nothing else, the fact that there's always hope as long as people are strong and stand up for what's right. And uh, she definitely did that. So, um, so fascinating. I always knew she'd be a brilliant guest. Maybe uh, maybe I can do another edition with Margaret uh, when her next book comes out, where we talk about as well as uh, time as chair of the Public Accounts Committee, because her first book, Call to Account, is, is really a magnificent piece on that. So I've put a link as I said, in the blurb, where you can buy that and where you can download the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report. It's obviously American Election Week, so I am going to try and get another edition out uh, this week, maybe later this week. Who knows what will happen? Who knows if we will have a clear result? Um, but obviously, it would uh, it, it, it would be good to try and cover that. If not, I shall cover it next week. So there you go. Uh, I hope you're uh, managing to keep your pecker up during this uh, difficult time. I hope this podcast helps in some way. And uh, I'll see you soon. ta Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.